On springtime afternoons in Baltimore City, lacrosse sticks abound. You can spot them strapped to the backs of high school boys or twisting round and round in the flicking wrists of kilted girls. Growing up here, you grow pretty accustomed to the sight. But there's something I've always found curious about the sport of lacrosse in Baltimore. Whereas historically, in other American cities it was a predominantly white sport, and one favored by wealthy white players at that, in Baltimore, generations of African-American children have seemed to have more than a passing familiarity with lacrosse. Kids here carry their lacrosse sticks on city buses. They play recreationally in clubs or on the few teams that exist at predominantly black high schools. And they're even recruited to play for the top-tier private schools and colleges here in Maryland. A number of urban youth leagues in Baltimore aim to introduce inner-city kids to the game as early as many suburban and upper-middle-class white kids begin to play it around age six. Here, a sport known for its elitism often manages somehow to greatly extend its reach. This isn't by happenstance. As it turns out, more than a few distinct 19th and 20th century occurrences set the city on its path toward becoming one of the nation's premier lacrosse hotspots. But as is the case with many American customs, as is the case with America, the game first belonged to the continent's indigenous nations. Long before it was known as lacrosse, it was played for different purposes, preserved for hundreds of years by societies far predating our own. Though those origins are acknowledged in Baltimore, with statues and trophies depicting Western interpretations of indigenous players, prominently displayed in high school trophy cases and even in the National Lacrosse Hall of Fame and Museum, the nuances of those origins remain largely unknown among today's non-indigenous players. For my part, before we began researching for this episode, I knew next to nothing about the sport. But you only need to spend a few minutes with any lacrosse enthusiast before you begin to understand that, across cultures, across generations, across regions, players share a few core values in common. Community, family, and love. To be certain, these manifest themselves differently among people from various walks of life. But as a relative lacrosse outsider, each player's expression when asked about the game was similarly beautiful to me. For WEAA 88.9, I'm Stacia Brown, and this is The Rise of Charm City, Episode 16, Lacrosse My Heart and Hope to Slide. Dr. Alan Downey is to health, a member of the Nakazali First Nation and an assistant professor in the Indigenous History Department at McGill University in Montreal. We can't compartmentalize lacrosse like we do in kind of Western culture, uh, an American-Canadian culture, that to think that it's separate from the politics and from societal values and from even spirituality. Because those connections, that compartmentalization doesn't exist within Indigenous communities in the way that it's portrayed in non-Indigenous communities. Dr. Downey says that the way lacrosse has been played for centuries within indigenous cultures is complex and varied. The game lacrosse was a healing game, still is to this day. It could be used amongst various indigenous nations to heal individuals, communities, nations. A game would be called upon in these periods of need. So if there are individuals that are sick and they need help, you can call upon a lacrosse game to help them heal you know, from a Haudenosaunee perspective, it's a, called the Creator's Game. Each Haudenosaunee nation has their own name for the game. Uh, most people would know the Haudenosaunee as the Iroquois, uh, or formerly as the Iroquois. 
the Haudenosaunee see it as a healing game. It really relates back to their sense of nationhood, to their identities, to their creation stories. And the same is true across various indigenous nations across North America. Dr. Downey told us that the games were often part of larger ceremonies in which their length, number of players, and other parameters were negotiated beforehand. So it's about this, this kind of process of reciprocity that's taking place between the game, the families, uh, the socio-political relations, and, and the ceremonies themselves. When we see this institutionalization of the game uh, through rules, you really lose that, and you lose that relationship. That erosion of the game's original intent began in the 1860s when Canadians were first introduced to it. So they basically, they take it, and what they start doing is they reformulate the game. And they're trying to establish a Canadian identity through the sport. See, by appropriating an indigenous element, what they were doing was trying to authenticate their own identities that they were creating. See, people didn't know what it meant to be Canadian at the time. They didn't know what it, uh, what it meant to differentiate yourself from Great Britain or from the United States. What they start doing is saying, well, indigenous peoples are native to this land, kind of pun intended there, um, are native to this land. It's their land. They're from here. This game, this lacrosse game, is native to the indigenous peoples. So therefore, if we appropriate this game, it gives us legitimacy and a claim to this place. But that so-called legitimacy came at high cost to the indigenous nations whose presence and culture long predated theirs. One of the first things they do in 1867, when the first uniform code of rules are written, is they actually partially ban indigenous players. They think that they're too good, this kind of hyper-racialization of indigenous peoples as being kind of the superior specimens and being super sarcastic at this point, kind of humankind, that they're so close to nature. It all relates back to the bloodthirsty and noble savage myth. Indigenous players began to travel, exhibiting the game in other countries, including England, France, and Ireland. You have communities that are within the United States, like Onondaga, Seneca Nations, uh, Oneida, who are exhibiting this game. But then you have also Haudenosaunee teams from Canada coming down into Vermont, New York City, Baltimore in the 1860s and 1870s, again, exhibiting this game to non-Indigenous peoples. They didn't have much choice. By 1880... The indigenous players are banned outright from competing in any Canadian national competition. So within about 20 to 30 years, Canadians are introduced to a game by indigenous peoples, appropriate it as their own to formulate a national identity, and then end up banning indigenous players from their own game by the 1880s. The history of this game is really kind of tied quite closely to race relations and indigenous and non-indigenous relations within both Canada and the United States. We wondered if lacrosse was embraced in America for similar reasons of national identity building. It's not to the same extent, but what they do do and what they do share in common with kind of these Canadian lacrosse enthusiasts is this perception and the idea that sports can kind of instill notions of manly accord and sportsmanship and all this highly kind of gendered uh, class language. And at the turn of the 1800s and 1900s, what's happening is they're looking to have answers to how can we instill these notions of moral values and virtue and these ideas of how we think 
our society should enact and kind of um, be defined by. Now, it's really important to remember that the people that are defining this are usually, you know, white, Anglo-Saxon, um, middle class or upper class individuals who are defining these ideas of national identity and of quote-unquote civility and moral virtue. And so this is what they're trying to kind of uh, reflect and get the sport to instill into citizens uh, across the country. So it doesn't have the same effect, it doesn't have the same impact as these national identities that are trying to be created in Canada as they are in the United States, but certainly when it comes to this idea of, uh, we call it muscular Christianity in sport, where you could instill these notions of moral virtue, uh, that certainly gets taken up. Talking to Dr. Downey about the westernization of lacrosse placed a lot of the other conversations we'd been having into context. I think that the more that participants can understand the roots and the origins of the game, um, the more that they can appreciate where it's come from. I think there's a uniqueness to lacrosse that is special than you know from any other sport. And I think part of that has to do with understanding the game is bigger than they are. And so it's you know the, the oldest game here in North America and arguably the oldest team sport. If you think about the individual sports that were being played in Europe at the time in the um, mid-1600s when this was first observed. And so I think once you understand that this is not just about what happens on the field, but the, origin, the original reasons that the Native Americans had um, the game to bring community around the game, to settle disputes, it's very similar to now, tailgating and people that are coming together with teams. And I think it, it really does make you uh, honor the game and understand more about it. This is Joshua Christian, Managing Director of Sport Development in the Hall of Fame at U.S. Lacrosse. We're standing inside the National Lacrosse Hall of Fame and Museum, which relocated from its original home on the campus of Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore City to Sparks, Maryland in 2016. Chronologically, so 1636 was the first time that it was, a, it was Jean Breuf, who was a French missionary, observed the Iroquois playing the game. So the name lacrosse at the time came from the crozier, the cross, the staff that the bishops carried, the missionaries carried, and that resembled a lacrosse stick shape. And so that was in the mid-1600s. And so then they obviously were French, and so they went back to Europe and talked a lot about this game they've seen. And during that time, up until about the 1900s, um, there were some demonstrations of early Native American teams with some club teams. And really the development here in the United States, in Baltimore and up in New York, um, all started to occur in, in the 1900s. Queen Victoria, who ultimately gave uh, sort of her blessing on the game, there was a game over that was played for her over in England, and it was between a, um, was, I think it was between a French team and it was a Native American team. And in her diary, she wrote that this game was very pretty to watch. And that gave some legitimacy to the game, and at that point, then it started to develop even more. To yield such large measure of profit and pleasure as lacrosse, our own national game. The women's game developed over in Scotland. There's schools over there and programs over there, and the original, uh, in 1926, Rosabelle Sinclair, who is in our Hall of Fame as well, established the first women's program in 1926 here at Bryn Mawr School in Baltimore. Now, the Baltimore connection is kind of, really kind of accidental. Mr. Joe Finn, archivist at U.S. Lacrosse. The Native Americans in the Baltimore area did not play lacrosse at all. There was no obvious connection. But in 1878, the summer of 1878, members of the Baltimore Athletic Club went to Newport, Rhode Island on a track meet. 
It had nothing to do with lacrosse. It was strictly a track meet. But while they were there, they saw lacrosse played for the first time. They liked what they saw. They brought equipment and rules back to Baltimore. And I believe it was November of 1878, the first lacrosse game was played at the old uh, New England Park in Baltimore, which is next to Drew Hill Park. And things kind of snowballed from there. Some clubs started, the Druid Club being one of them. Johns Hopkins picked it up and took it seriously. I often say if it wasn't for Baltimore, I don't think that uh, lacrosse would be much more than a, maybe a Native American curiosity in this country. As we neared the end of our tour, Mr. Christian and Mr. Finn showed us the Hall of Fame wall, a lovely spectacle of interlocking embossed wood, each block bearing the image and brief biographical information of the country's best players, coaches, officials, and contributors. There's also an interactive search engine for the inductees. Chief Orrin Lyons, he was an All-American, he was the goalie on the Syracuse team where Jim Brown played, one of the leading leaders and faith keepers of the Iroquois Nation, and he is considered one of the, and still is, one of the sort of pioneers, leaders of the Native American sport. I know Leon Miller is also an early, he's been all the way back here. He played at the Carlisle Indian School in New York in 1960. Um, and so there are some, um, but again, it's not, um, not the ratio that we would, we would like, but there are some, yeah. Yeah, the Native American involvement, or I should say re-involvement, uh, has been, I think, a, 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 a major thing in the past couple of years. We're glad to see it. Uh, the game was, of course, as we said before, uh, uh, it had its origins with Native Americans. Yet for a while there, I guess in the uh, later part of the 19th century, 20th century, they were sort of excluded from competition. The um, excuse they used was because the, uh, uh, the Native Americans uh, liked to wager on games. That's part of their culture, always been part of their culture. That's what they said, but uh, I think we know what the real reason was. You're beginning to see more Native Americans going to college. They're becoming much more accepted and, and, uh, and included in the, in the game, and we've, we've sort of brought them back in to the game that was theirs from the very beginning. I know that's an African-American woman up there. Tina Sloan Green, yeah. So Tina Sloan Green is uh, Sherry Greer is also African-American. She's going to be a little bit more modern over here, um, and obviously Jim Brown on the men's side. So, you know, part of our challenge and one in our priorities as a national governing body we use the, the phrase a lot you change the um, complexion of the sport you change the perception of the sport and so we feel that um, it is an opportunity to introduce and to bring in specifically and deliberately um, people of color not just african-american but all people of color into the game in all roles when you look at this wall it's um it's not as diverse as we think the sport should be but it's reflective of where it's come from. So we embrace that and say, hey, that is our roots of where this has come from. But, you know, we hope that that next space that's on the end of the wall looks a little different than, you know, the original spaces. But it's um, something we have to be deliberate about. I'm surprised at how excited I was to see that. Yeah. Yeah, she's a huge pioneer up in... in We've know. covered a lot of early lacrosse history, but there's still so much to explore, including how the predominantly white Western version of the game became integrated in Baltimore City. Next up, the story of the Ten Bears. You've been listening to The Rise of Charm City on your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM. There are a few things you need to know about how Morgan State University became the first HBCU to form a college lacrosse team. It's a story that's been told at greater length in an ESPN segment that can be found online and in a full-length PBS documentary, The Morgan Lacrosse Story. 
both of which we recommend that you seek out if you'd like a more comprehensive portrait of this history. Here's the snapshot. It's 1970, two years after the death of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. sparked riots in Baltimore and across the country. Radical activism is reaching its peak both on Morgan's campus and far beyond it. At the same time, many students coming into the college were residents of Baltimore, coming to an HBCU after having attended high school during a thorny four-year transitional period from segregation to desegregation. Because we're in Baltimore, um, one of the endemic areas for lacrosse, most of the public schools played. This is Dr. Miles G. Harrison, Jr., co-author of the book Ten Bears and founding member of Morgan State's 1970 lacrosse team of the same name. Those that were known to be majority African-American, like Dunbar, like Douglas, like Walbrook, they didn't have lacrosse teams. Um, but most of the other schools in the city did, public schools in the city did. That Dr. Harrison didn't attend an historically predominantly black high school accounted for his early access to lacrosse. He began playing as a sophomore. Understand that right in that corridor of 63, 64, 65, Forest Park went from 75% white, 25% black to, <laughs> you got it, the, 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 uh, the, the racial mix was exactly switched, 25% white and now 75% black. And I was a starting quarterback for two years for that school that was still largely white. So we played some teams that were out of the Baltimore area in Wicomico County, which is southern Maryland. Uh, a little bit different racial mix, a little bit different thought process down there than in, in the city. And uh, let's just say um, when it was recognized what was under that helmet, you know, uh, got some, some words. <laughs> so. Dr. Harrison missed lacrosse when he began his studies at Morgan. About two years in, he got together with a few other players who'd had the somewhat rare opportunity to play on star lacrosse teams in their integrated high schools. They began discussing the prospect of getting a club team going on campus. Morgan in the early 60s had, had teams that could beat anybody in the country. You, you name the team and they could beat them. And that's when segregation um, made us have to go to HBCUs. Earl Banks, then a football coach at Morgan, approached a white graduate school instructor Howard Chip Silverman, about coaching the team. Coach Banks said something very simple, which, which we all found funny, but true. Said, you're a white boy. You must have played lacrosse at some point, didn't you? And so Chip said, yeah, but isn't that kind of racist? He said, well, you're the coach now. Before long, given the collective experience and skill of the players who'd come to the Morgan team after playing lacrosse and other team sports as high school stars, the Ten Bears began winning. Four or five of the uh, people who won the club team who didn't go on to play on the NCAA team actually got drafted into the NFL. Because they were such a new team, Dr. Harrison says opponents and spectators routinely underestimated them, but not for long. I got sold, and I'm super bad. They, they, they bought how we were built as this new fledgling team. What they didn't tell them is seven of us were all state lacrosse players. Just didn't get recruited. And, and so that was another really gratifying feeling to see in their eyes and their, and their motion that it was almost like you could see their bodies giving up and we're not going to be able to beat these guys. And, and that, that, I got to tell you, was, was really gratifying. I got sold and I'm super bad. 
The Ten Bears remained a league at Morgan until 1981. Dr. Harrison's son Kyle continued his father's legacy as part of the oldest college lacrosse league in Baltimore, Johns Hopkins. He also played professionally. Dr. Harrison played us the ESPN segment on the Ten Bears, and it ended by featuring his son. For a little black kid, you don't, you don't really have you know, many people to look up to, and so it's nice to have you know, the Ten Bears and, and that team at Morgan State you know, to look, look up to and you say, you know, those guys did it, you know, why can't I do it? We look at this kid like, we all look at him like our son. Oh yeah, I played with his dad, you know, that's, that's our boy. Uh, yeah, we're very proud of him, and uh, all of us you know, go to Hopkins games now to watch Cotton. When I see Kyle playing on the field, I do see him in a Morgan uniform. Sometimes it's almost like he goes out of that blue and white uniform and I see that orange pop up on him. And I see the pride going down the field. And every time I'm not going to cry and I can't get to that part and I can't, can't hold it back. Bill Creenbrink currently coaches lacrosse at Morgan State. In 2005, after 25 years without a formal lacrosse presence on campus, Coach Creenbrink was recruited to serve as a volunteer coach for a newly formed extracurricular team at Morgan. All of the players that came through the Morgan system were taught so they could be coaches. We have currently Division I coaches who, have, who are Morgan State grads and alum. So it's worked very well, and it's going to do nothing but grow because I've continued that system, and the kids that come through here, they are going to be powerhouse coaches. You make book on it. We started with nothing, literally, and now we look like a team. We have helmets that are alike. We have gloves that are alike. We have uniforms that are great. We have lots of businesses contributing to our success because Morgan— University doesn't contribute any money toward the team. It's all on us, the team or club members. And um, so far, we've done pretty good. You've been listening to The Rise of Charm City on WEAA 88.9 FM. You've heard about some of lacrosse's earliest history, as well as its Baltimore roots. Lacrosse continues to enjoy a long run of popularity in the city today. Private high schools like Boys Latin, The Park School, and St. Paul's School recruit the best players in the state to ensure their team's success. And urban rec leagues are introducing players to lacrosse who historically would have had far less financial and cultural access to the sport. But as you might imagine, how those players navigate the lacrosse cultural landscape is quite different. It's not something that you turn on your TV and you see every day. It's not football. It's not basketball. This is Artie West, executive director of Charm City Youth Lacrosse. It requires a lot of money to participate, whether it's from the equipment standpoint or just even in the the standpoint of just transportation to get to where these activities take place. You don't drive down Baltimore City and see lacrosse fields just any everywhere. It's not something that a kid can just pick up a pair of shoes and there's a basketball court right out their front door. Um, It takes some some know-about and some exploring to really navigate the waters of lacrosse. 
the biggest challenge in selling it to a, a parent is where can this take your child? You know, everyone thinks basketball, football is a lifeline for college and even potentially a career in some type of monetary way to either get out of the situation they're in or success into being able to be able to provide for their family. Um, lacrosse, again, doesn't, there has not had that longevity in their eyes. And, and so really selling the point that this could be a sport that could propel your kid into various avenues, whether it is education at going to a boys Latin or education into college or just even experience, just having your child attend an overnight camp. Most of our kids never get a chance to um, leave the hood. So that's kind of where that kind of goes. Here are Matt Kennedy, Director of Alumni Relations, and Bob Shriver, current teacher and former 36-year lacrosse coach at historic local lacrosse powerhouse, the Boys Latin School. Mr. Kennedy is the author of a book titled The History of Lacrosse at Boys Latin. Yeah, we actually have uh, three students here. Carlos Davis is a sophomore. He plays on our JV. He's a... He's a football, basketball, lacrosse guy. He's also doing really well academically. He's a wonderful kid. Kendall Walker's a Charm City kid who's in our ninth grade who came through our middle school. And Kendall is also a basketball player, and he, he played JV basketball this year as a, a freshman and is elected not, to play, elected not to play lacrosse this spring. We hope he comes back to lacrosse because he's a good player. And I teach, I teach seventh grade science. We have a Charm City kid named Cedric Tyson who's in our seventh grade. He came last year in the sixth grade. I'd say over the years, probably 70% of our kids that play lacrosse go on and try to play in college. Regarding that, he just mentioned Bates. They're a college now that has two boys Latin kids on the team. And just this week, I believe they were given the number one ranking in Division Three. So, I mean, our kids are scattered all over the place. Bob didn't mention the, the, all the service academies play lacrosse. Certainly Navy and Army have been playing for decades and have had you know, great programs we have a couple kids at the Naval Academy now that are graduates of Boys Latin who are, who are playing down there. I live in Federal Hill at the time, and I was driving, and I saw a boy actually with a lacrosse stick. And I was just thinking, you know, in the city, the boys get offered lots and lots of opportunities. It just seems to me from my, I hadn't done research, I hadn't, I hadn't really looked at it in time. But to me, I was just, you know, girls need an opportunity too. Shailene Bader, founder of 13th Girl Foundation an urban league for elementary and middle school girls in Baltimore City public schools. Some of the logistics are difficult. I would say that non-existing or deteriorating facilities, equipment uniforms, like transportation and social and cultural barriers are one of the things that need to be addressed. Some of them, as I say, practice on on blacktops. Some of them do practice. There is field space. It's just not, I mean, they are deteriorating. I will tell you they're not kept up. It's really expensive for anyone to play lacrosse right now. And then if you add that to the average person who's below their poverty line, it becomes very, very hard for them to play the sport. Your average club team, which is kind of equivalent to like an AAU basketball team, can run you anywhere from $1,200 to $5,000 a year. And that's just including the fees to participate. It's not including the equipment. You have to think about kids grow every 6 to 12 months. Um, And then you're not including, like I said, that travel expense where a lot of these Events now are not only in Baltimore, but some of them take place in New Jersey and Philadelphia. So you're adding the cost to travel, hotel, all the things that um, that go into into being in part of the sport. To field a boys player, it's about I mean the average is about two hundred dollars for equipment, and then you know you tack on the, the fee for cleats and sneakers or whatever have you. Um, so it can you know it can get kind of expensive. 
Just before we wrapped production on this episode, early on a Saturday afternoon, we managed to score an interview with a family of four who've benefited from the presence of Charm City Youth Lacrosse in their neighborhood. They stopped by the station on their way to a game. My name is Derek Clark. Hi, my name is Cabron Clark, and I'm a student at Roland Park Elementary Middle School, and I play lacrosse. Hello, my name is Larisha Clark. Hello, my name is Dakari Clark. I'm a student at St. Paul's, and I play for rock lacrosse. Donnie, like Coach Donnie, he really talked to me about the Ten Bears and how it was like the first HBCU um, lacrosse team to win a championship, and they're really good. You meet a lot of people, too. Like, you meet people doing anything. But in lacrosse, it's different because you meet a lot more people and you gain more friendships. And it's, like, more like a a tight bond with people you form. So, like, a fundamental part of lacrosse is stick work. And in order to practice stick work, you just throw the ball ball at a wall and catch it. And that keep that you have to do that for hours at a time, and that just keeps you really busy. Instead of like say you were hanging around a bad neighborhood, you were doing something different than that. But if you have that stick in your hand, then you can get better, and it's taking up your time. I'm Matt from Baltimore. I'm from Arlington, Virginia. And when I was young, we didn't play lacrosse or see lacrosse. But when I came to Baltimore, I started no- noticing lacrosse. And what I noticed about lacrosse is that, well, I feel like our children need as many opportunities as they can and lacrosse opens up another door of opportunities for the kids. There are programs in the city for the youth to be exposed to lacrosse and I'm not sure if everyone knows about it. You know like programs like Charm City Youth Lacrosse, they're really doing really good things for the kids like exposing the kids to camps that are are, uh, expensive camps you know for little to no fees and giving the kids exposure to things that they wouldn't otherwise get exposure to. Like through through Charm City, Cabron has been given the opportunity to play in a tournament in the West Coast this summer. And there's no, <laughs> we weren't going to do that without this uh, program. As a bonus, the game Cabron will play will benefit cancer research, making his participation a lesson not just in healthy teamsmanship, but in compassion and philanthropy. Every year they've gotten better, and they've had great coaches, good programs that really have pushed them, like you said, that exposure to the sport, especially since they really didn't start too early. They came in kind of later for some children in the sport, but they've picked it up and really worked hard, and just to see them every year doing better and better, really as a parent, I mean, it's it's joyful. It really is. Um, One beneficial thing that comes from lacrosse is that it teaches you, like, it teaches you to love something other than like your family and it's like the love that comes from when you lose a game and you like cry or like you feel down like it's like it shows that you really care about the sport and um also when when you win it's like you're happy like you're really happy and then it just it's just like yeah we won and then but when you lose it's like it's harder for you, and that shows that you really, like, you want to win every game, and you love the game so much, and yeah. This episode of The Rise of Charm City was produced by Ali Post and Stacia Brown. It is brought to you by WEAA 88.9 FM, with financial support from the Robert W. Deutsch Foundation and listeners like you. 
Production assistance was provided by Marsha Jews. Our theme music is produced by Mark Gunnery of the Center for Emerging Media. Special thanks this week to Atira Koikoi, who shadowed us for her senior project at the Park School. Happy graduation, Atira. For photos related to Baltimore's lacrosse communities and the people you just heard talking about them, visit riseofcharmcity.com or follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We're at Rise of Charm City. You can find and listen to the Rise of Charm City as a podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other podcast providers. <laughs>